0: Uh, Today's reading will come from 1 Samuel, as we continue in that study of uh, that book. That's uh, 1 Samuel chapter 27. Then David said in his heart, now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. So David arose and went over he and the 600 men who were with him to Achish, the son of Maok, king of Gath. And David lived with Achish at Gath, he and his men, every man with his household, and David with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. And when it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. Then David said to Achish, if I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be given me in one of the country towns that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So that day Achish gave him Ziklag. Therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. And the number of the days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. Now David and his men went up and made raids against the Jeshurites, the Gerzites, the Amalekites, for these were the inhabitants of the land from old, as far as sure to the land of Egypt. And David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive, but would take away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the garments and come back to Achish. When Achish asked, where have you made a raid today? David would say, against the Negev of Judah, against the Negev of the Jehoramilites, against the Negev of the Kenites. And David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking lest they should tell about us and say, so David has done. Such was his custom all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines. And Achish trusted David, thinking, He has made himself an utter stench to his people Israel. Therefore, he shall always be my servant. So, reading of the Word of God, let's pray. Father, we uh, come together on this beautiful Sunday morning. I thank you as we are gathered here, each believer looking through your Holy Spirit to hear your word. We incline ourselves to you, Lord, now uh, as you bring your living word. I ask that you would bless Pastor Lee in that act, Father. I ask that you would be the words that come out of his mouth, Father, that we might be strengthened as we see David, and it's, it's amazing how common he is and how great you are. Uh, let us grow from that, Father, and we submit these things to you in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: Amen. Good morning. morning. What a beautiful day to be in the house of God together. Amen? Amen. Amen. So, we're continuing in our series in 1 Samuel here. And before we get too far into it, I just want to remind us of a few things we've talked about already. We're going through a historical book of the Bible. And sometimes the Bible just gives us bare history. Sometimes history is just history. It doesn't tell us one way or the other, if it's a good thing, if it's a bad thing, it just tells us what happens. We've also talked about how we see in the book of 1 Samuel how God will give you a true picture of his people, even like giants of the faith like David, right? I was talking to someone this morning, and it's the same thing I think when I go through 1 Samuel. You know, what's wrong with David, right? I mean, God gave him these promises. He said, you will be king. And sometimes David's says, yes, God, I trust you. I trust you. He should have said to Saul, I dare you. God said you wouldn't kill me. But we don't always see that with David, right? We see his weakness. We see his failures. We even see his sin. Well, today we're going to see a historical event. Bible doesn't tell us one way or the other what's good or what's bad. So it's kind of up to us to determine together what this event we're about to look at reveals about David. Now, realize though the uh, chapter and verses in your Bible, they weren't inspired, just so you know. Um, But I I found it interesting. This is only one of two chapters in both books of Samuel where God is not even mentioned. There's no Yahweh, no Elohim, not even an Adonai thrown in there. This this is just like the book of Judges. We're just getting history without commentary. It doesn't tell us one way or the other what God thinks of all of this. All the what? What actually happens here? Well... We just heard of Dave. David, again, runs from Saul. He goes to the land of the Philistines, believing, well, Saul's not going to come after me there. While there, he makes friends with the king of Gath. And he's allowed to stay in this city called Ziklag, which we'll get to in a minute, all the way in the south of the Philistine lands. And while staying there, him and his men, they they make these, these raids for a year and four months on the lands of the unbelievers, including the Amalekites. But he makes the king of Gath believe, oh, no, 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 I'm attacking the south of Judah. No, 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 I'm on your side, bud. And through it all, we'll see David earns the trust of the king. And we're going to see, finally, he earns so much trust of the king that the king winds up asking David, hey, let's go together to go attack Israel. Yikes. So I'm going to do something I don't normally do. I'm going to show you a map. I don't know how well you can see that, because I I just want us to to, to see what's really going on here. Note all of the Philistine territory in the west there. We've already seen all the cities, the five cities of the Philistines. All of that was supposed to be part of the promised land. And we can miss how bad things really were in Israel at this time, because the story is so focused on Saul and David. Problem is, Saul is so focused on David. Look, half the kingdom is under Philistine rule. Note where Gath is. About middle, Ziklag, Amalek, shore to the west would be where Egypt is. I find that knowing sometimes where these things actually happen help make them more real to us, right? So I just want to get a picture of how bad things were in Israel at this point. Now, we know where it happens. What happens? 1 Samuel 27, verse 1. David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. It's ironic, considering we saw in the last chapter, David complaining to Saul, your men are making me leave Israel. You want to send me to other lands and worship other gods. Here David does it himself. History actually repeats itself here. Once again, we see after Saul repented of what he did, David still doesn't believe him. We saw in the last chapter, Saul said, David, you're right, I'm wrong. I swear I won't hurt you. May you be blessed. You're going to do great things. And David is still sure Saul is going to kill him. I mean, this is literally what Saul says. Let's go back a chapter. Saul says, I have sinned. Return my son David, meaning to Israel, for I will no more do you harm, because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I have acted foolishly and have made a great mistake. And then he ends with this in verse 25. Blessed be you, my son David. You will do many things and will succeed in them. So David went his way and Saul returned to his place. But Which way does David go? Well, after all these promises by Saul, David says, now I'm definitely going to die. Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There's nothing better for me and that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hands. Clearly, David didn't think that Saul's heart was going to change for very long, and he was right. So we're actually told in verse 4 that once Saul found out David was in Gath, that he stopped seeking him. That means he was still seeking him. So the pursuit continued despite what Saul said. So David decides he's going to escape, of all places, to Gath. And note the phrase here in this verse, borders of Israel. The, the, these, this phrase is used in the Old Testament very often to describe the inheritance of the promised land. It describes the total of the promised land that God promised to his people. And we've already seen the Philistine lands were supposed to be part of that. And control of these lands goes back and forth between Israel and the Philistines for, I don't know, a few centuries. As we saw on our map, the Philistines control a substantial part of the land at this time. So much of it was not part of a nation of Israel. And David figures, hey, I'm just going to get out of here. I'm going to get out of the land that's currently Israel and into the land of Gath." Now, why is any of this important? Because we're going to see today that a portion, this portion of history is very concerned with the land. Our passage, in part today, brings to the fore the struggle for the promised land that God gave them. Remember, God gave Israel the land and said, now go take it. Israel hadn't even done that yet. And the one fighting for the land here, notice, isn't Saul, but David. David was actually doing what God said to do. We're going to see, it's not exactly being done the way God said to do it. David did what God said to do, but not why God said it, or how God said it. David kind of does what God wants, but does it his own way and for his own reasons. I can't relate, can you? Well, I think we all can, right? Just like in this account, we read what? Sometimes we get stuck on the what, don't we? We know what we're supposed to do as Christians. God tells us what to do, so we do it. We check it off our list and feel like, okay, now I've been obedient. God tells us to read our Bible, so we do. God tells us to go to church, so we do. This is, after all, what Christians do, right? We focus so much on the what sometimes that we don't even think about the why or the how of what we do. That's really the problem for David here. Now think about the way David has been presented by the writer of 1 Samuel. You know, David's introduced in chapter 16, secretly anointed king. That whole David and Goliath thing happens. David's now renowned in Israel. Now Saul's jealous. Send him off to battle. He'll get killed. No, he won't. Send him to the Philistines. He'll get killed. No, he won't. You know why? Because David believed God would fight for his people. David believed God's promises. David believed God would give them the lands. But as we know, things turn bad for David. He gets scared, and he goes running for his life from Saul. I mean, Saul did try killing him multiple times, right? We saw that. He tried to do it himself twice. He tried to do it by sending him into battle, tried to do it by sending him to the Philistines. But David, through it all, trusted God. He trusted God against Goliath. He trusted God on all these occasions, and you know what? David had great success. He knew God would fight for him and fight for Israel. It's only when David started to take matters into his own hands that things got really bad for him. Did you notice that? I mean, think about how the story goes here. David's fighting the battles of God, and he's doing great. Then he decides to go on the run, and the first thing he does, as we saw, is he goes to Ahimelech, the priest, and takes the holy bread, doesn't pray about it, right? He just he wants to get out of there, and I, I need provision, so I'm going to take this bread, and that winds up wiping out almost the entire priesthood. Not a great moment for David. Let's, let's agree to that, right? Then, David recognizes his mistake. And he gets the ephod. And, and after consulting God, he goes up and saves the people of Kayla. He And then he flees the city only at God's word. And then he's in a cave and here comes Saul. And he says, I'm not going to stretch up my hand against Saul. I trust God. I'm going to rely on God. That's a really good moment for David, right? Well, the very next thing we have is the Nabal incident. Some guy doesn't give him some bread and wine. He decides, all right, I'm going to wipe out the guy's whole family. We know God stopped him through Abigail, but not a great moment for David, right? Then we have the last chapter. And there's David again. Opportunity to kill Saul. Tells the captain of his army, no, don't do it. If God wants him dead, God will take care of it. I'm not going to stretch up my hand. Another great moment for David. Do you see a pattern forming here in David's life? Up, down, up, down down. And we're going to see if this happens his whole life. Like I said, the Bible doesn't hide anything. Even the giants of the faith like David are shown for what they are. They are people of great faith who still struggle with sin. They're people who trust God. In their hearts, they trust God. In their practice, sometimes they trust themselves. And this is good that the Bible does this. That reveals these things about people like David because it makes them relatable. It makes them relatable to me. Have you ever felt like your life was like that? Up, down, up, down. I'm on the mountaintop. I'm in the valley. Great faith. I'm doubting everything. I trust God. I kind of trust myself more. I'm obedient. Sin. This is just me, right? No, that's part of our walk, right? This is part of our sanctification. But if we have repented and believed in Jesus Christ, here's the good news. The Bible tells us that we will start to have more obedience than sin. We will trust God a little more and a little more and a little more and ourselves a little less and a little less and a little less. And our faith will grow. We will overcome doubt day by day. But we will still fail. Even though the mountaintops are are higher and more regular, the valleys are still there. But there's another danger we have to watch out for. You know, that's those times when we aren't in the valley, but we're not quite on the mountaintop either. I think if we're honest, this is where we live most of our life, isn't it, as Christians? You know, we're not feeling particularly far from God. We know God is good. We seek Him, spend some time in the Word. We're praying. We're coming to church. We're doing all this stuff most days for the right reasons. And then there's the other part of our life, that part when we're not at church maybe after we've done our daily devotional and kind of goes out of our minds, and we're just living our lives. At work, at school, with our friends. We all have obligations we have to meet, right? We're all trying to find some time, maybe just enjoy some downtime, enjoy a hobby maybe. I mean, it's not a valley, but God's not necessarily in it, is he? Certainly not the mountaintop, but it doesn't mean we're sinning either. We're just kind of, halfway up the mountain. You know, we do our best to live lives pleasing to God, do our best to avoid blatant sin, try not to contradict the Bible, the way we live, you know, read our Bibles and pray when we have time and we remember. It's not mountaintop. God, I trust you. Have your way in me. I'll do anything. Send me anywhere. It's not in the valley like, God, what happened? Why'd you leave me? Why are you so far from me? No, our life is usually, God, yes, you're there, I love you, thank you, and I'm here doing the best I can. Well, that's what David was doing. That's a dangerous place to be. I mean, we know what God wants. Oh, but it's so easy to do things our way, isn't it? I mean, is that pleasing to God? Is that sinful? Well, let's continue on. As I said, David kind of does what God wants, but kind of does it his own way for his own reasons. After trusting God, having that mountaintop moment where he trusts God and doesn't kill Saul, he immediately decides, I'm in trouble, Saul's going to kill me, and he runs away. Does he still trust God? Well, sure he does. But sometimes it's a lot easier to trust God when we're taking our own steps to take care of things, isn't it? It's not necessarily bad. I mean, I I do trust God to protect me. I still look both ways when I cross the street, trust me. I still trust God to provide for me. I still get up and go to work every day. But does that describe what David's doing here? Trust God one moment? Tells the captain of the guard, don't don't kill Saul. God will take care of it. God's in charge. He'll do it all. And then all of a sudden, David finds it a lot easier to keep trusting God if there's a little more distance between him and Saul. David's all of a sudden sure Saul's going to kill him if he stays there. So, yeah, David believes God's promise. Ish. Certainly believes it a little more if he can have some say in how it plays out, Right? Again, I know, we don't do that. But we see that up and down here in David's life. Trusting God. Like, I can only hope one day to trust God. Then running away. Not trusting God. Trust God, trust myself. Trust God, trust myself. Look where David goes. Verse 2. David arose and went over. He and his 600 men who were with him, to Achish, the son of Maok, king of Gath. And David lived with Achish at Gath, he and his men, Every man with his household, and David with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel, and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. History repeating itself again. When we rely on ourselves, when we trust ourselves, when we do things our way, we're going to see history repeat itself over and over and over again too. Do you remember when David first fled from Saul? After he got the bread from the priests? Do you know where he went? Let's go back to Chapter 21. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And his servants of Achish said to him, Is this not David, the king of the lands? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and he was very much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? Close call, David. He says to run, okay, I'm going to go to, I'm going to go, take the bread, I'm going to go to Gath. But then he gets there and the Philistines are like, dude, you're the Goliath guy. We know who you are. We know what you did to him. We know what you've done to us and lucky David can think on his feet fast, right? He's smart enough to find a way to get himself out of it when this doesn't work out. Praise God for that. David made a mistake, realized it, and in God's providence, he was able to escape unscathed. Close call. Whew, lesson learned, right? Nope. David sure is Saul's going to kill him again, and David arose and went over, he and his 600 men who were with him, to Achish, the son of Maoch, king of Gath, and David lived with Achish at Gath. Now understand, the name Achish is now believed to be a title, the title of the Philistine king, just like Pharaoh is the title of the Egyptian king. That's why this Achish is differentiated from the other Achish in chapter 21 with this son of Mayok thing. If you're wondering why, he's letting him stay here, okay? But other than that, David is doing exactly what he already did once before. You know, when it didn't work out. And we'll see at the end of his passage, it works out even worse this time. Now, doesn't that seem foolish? To try something... Realize it's a failure, but try the same thing over and over again. I think someone wants to find insanity that way, right? I'm glad we don't do that. I'm glad we don't repeat mistakes. I'm glad we don't do things our way, realize how wrong it is to do it, and then do it again. You know, like when we maybe hang out with that group of friends. And yeah, you know, when I'm with them, maybe I laugh at things I wouldn't otherwise laugh at. Maybe I use less than sanctified language, wouldn't use it at church. Maybe when I'm with them, you know, I always wind up drinking too much. We don't realize that and then go do it again, right? Or like when we neglect our Bibles and prayer and come in the church and just totally disregard our Christian walk and we realize, wow, This has just brought me so far from God. And it just tends me towards sin more and more. And then we come back and we repent and here we are. We never go back to that, right? We don't go back to the same kind of places, watch the same kind of movies, go to the same kinds of websites that lead us into sin, do we? That would be silly. You know, it's amazing, just like David. No matter how many times doing things our way turns out bad, We still want to do it. History tends to repeat itself for us, too. And when we do things our way, we do what Paul warns us against, and we actually make provision for the flesh. When we do things our way, like David does here, we put ourselves in a very bad position. It's not our intention. In fact, we don't think we're doing good, right? No, i got to stick with that group of friends. They're all unsaved. i got to show them Jesus. Do you? I just, it was a busy day, busy week. I ran out of time. I didn't really have time to pray today. But you know what? I was working. I was spending time with my family. Things that are good on the surface, right? We may even do some good. David does some good here. Verse 5, And David said to Achish, If I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be given, given me in one of the country towns that I made dwell there. For why should your servants dwell in the royal city with you? So that day Achish gave him Ziklag, Therefore, Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. What happens? David takes part of the land back for Israel. He takes Ziklag back from the Philistines and it remained part of Israel until at least the writing of this book. Because as we know, that was part of Israel. That was part of God's promise. And as we saw a few weeks ago, Samuel's dead. The judges are gone. It's now on the king. As the king goes, so will Israel go. And here David's doing the job of the king. He's expanding the territory of Israel. He's doing what God said to do. He's even doing what Saul refused to do. Verse 8, Now David and his men went up and made raids against the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites. For these were the inhabitants of the land from of old. As far as sure, which we saw on the map, to the land of Egypt, which was just off the map. And David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive, but would take away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, the garments, and come back to Achish. Notice, David's doing what Saul refused to do with the Amalekites. Remember, that's why God took the kingdom from him. He refused to wipe them out. David's doing it. He's destroying the Amalekites, destroying the pagans from off the land. When we look at what David was doing, we think it's good. He's doing exactly what God told him to do. But God isn't only interested in the what, is he? God doesn't look at the outside, right? God sees the heart. He sees our intentions. He knows our reasons for everything. Nothing passes by him unnoticed. God cares about what we do. He cares very much about the what. But he cares just as much about the why and the how. And so should we. We should definitely care about what we do as Christians. But we should care just as much about why we do it and how we do it. Because if all three of these are done according to God's will, then you know what? Not only will we be powerful instruments in the hands of God, like we've seen David be so many times. But it's going to benefit us. We will grow from the experience. Our faith will grow. We will learn to trust God. We will be moving steadily toward the mountaintop. We will experience true communion with God. We'll grow. But if any of these are done our way, really all we're doing is learning to trust ourselves. And the obvious one here is the what, right? If what we do is contrary to God's word, we've already lost. There's no discussion to be had. The what is the easy part. But even when the what aligns with God's word, we still need the why and the how. Because if we don't have all three, you know, maybe we're not moving down the mountain into the valley, but I'll tell you what, we aren't climbing up the mountain towards the mountaintop either. We're just kind of stuck where we are, halfway up the mountain. That's where David was, right? The what was good. Taking the land, good. Destroying the inhabitants of the land. Good. That's what God commanded. Why was David doing it? Well, let's even forget for a second that David was only even here because he was running for his own life in his own interest, right? David's destroying the inhabitants of the land. God commanded that. And why? Verse 11. And David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking, lest they should tell about us and say, so David is done. Such was his custom all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines. David's destroying the inhabitants of the land like God commanded, but he's doing it to protect himself. He's doing it to the king of Gath and let him stay. Which leads us right to the how. How is David doing what under other circumstances would be great? Well, David's being deceitful. Verse 8, David and his men went up and made raids against the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites, for those were the inhabitants of the land from old, as far as shore to the land of Egypt. And David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive, but would take away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the garments and come back to Achish. When Achish asked, where have you made a raid today? David would say, against the Negev of Judah or against the Negev of the, uh, whatever that word is, or against the Negev of the Kenites. David would go south and attack the pagans of the land but he'd tell the king, I went north and attacked Israel. He's outright lying to the guy who's giving him protection from Saul. And I am sure, listen, I'm sure you you look at this and maybe say, well, that's not so bad, right? I mean, they are war against them. You're not going to tell your enemy everything you're doing. I'm sure it was easy to rationalize for David because good was getting done. God's will is being carried out, right? So lying to people and the Philistines of all people, that's no big deal. So long as what happens is good, something else we never do, right? Not even a little white lie, right? We would never convince ourselves the ends justify the means, right? Look, it all ended up good in the end, so you know what? Not telling the total truth, eh, that's the big deal. Sure, maybe I rearrange some facts here and there, but you know what? It ended the fight, so really that's good, right? I want to ask you to raise your hand if you've done that. I don't want to put you in a position to lie. That's what David was doing here. He was deceiving the king of Gath. And even though the what seemed good, they don't do anything in a vacuum, right? Yeah, David was doing what the king of Israel should have been doing. Not how the king should have. Not why the king should have. And what happens? Verse 12. And Achish trusted David, thinking, he has made himself an utter stench to his people Israel, therefore he shall always be my servant. David lied to the king so he could stay and be safe from Saul. And what's more, you know, David's doing this for political reasons, too. We'll read this in a few weeks when we get to the end of the book. David has another big battle against the Amalekites. He takes a bunch of spoil, gives some to his men, and then we'll read this in 1 Samuel 30. When David came to Ziklag, he sent part of his spoil to his friends. The elders of Judah saying, here's a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. It was for those in Bethel, in Ramoth of Negev, in Jatir, in Aror, in Sifmoth, in Eshtemoa, in Rekhal, in the cities of the, that word again, in the cities of the Kenites, in Hormah, in Borishan, in Thak, in Hebron, for all the places where David and his men had roamed. David is garnering favor here with the people of the south of Judah, including Hebron, where we saw he's going to be anointed king the first time. He's making friends with these people, doing what he's doing. He's giving them spoils from his battle. And while we're not told explicitly, I would have to imagine he'd been doing this all along since when we get to this other passage, they're already his friends. All right, so let's review. What's the what? Oh, David took back parts of the promised land and destroyed the inhabitants of the land. Good. What's the why? Well, self-preservation, political interest. What's the how? Well, deceitfully. So, what do we think? No commentary in the chapter. Put this in the good moment or bad moment column for David, do we think? All right, so let's start with the same questions on ourselves. Let's talk about what we do as God's people. So, have got to be honest. I think in American evangelical circles, we have bought into a way of thinking that is very dangerous to us. It keeps us just circling the mat when halfway up. We buy into things that we hear from pulpits or read in books or magazines that are true enough, but when too emphasized, they're very dangerous. They actually take away the what of Christianity. A lot of Christians don't think there's a what to our faith, believe it or not. You ever heard someone say that Christianity is a relationship, not a religion? Did you ever hear that one? This goes right along with that whole all I need is a personal relationship with Jesus thing. I mean, do we have a relationship with Christ? Absolutely. But somehow that has started to define our faith. And American Christians think, hey, as long as I got a relationship with Jesus, it's all good. That's all I need. It's not what the Bible says. Is that how the New Testament even describes our relationship with Christ? Or is our relationship with Christ one of Lord and servant, one of husband and submissive wife, one of head and body that carries out the will of the head? All right, how about one of the battle cries of the Reformed faith? Grace alone through faith alone. I believe that. Who believes that? Matt, get your hand up. Thank you. Do I believe this defines our salvation? In a sense, it's how we're justified. But to say that's it, I have faith, nothing else to do. That is to squander the grace God has given us. To say I have faith and that's enough is to have a dead faith. Faith without works means we don't really have that faith at all. The fact of the matter is the Bible, yes, even the New Testament does not shy away from telling us the what. For all the wonderful grace it reveals to us. For the amazing union with Christ that we can grow through reading the Bible. There's plenty of what there for us. It tells us very clearly what we should and must do as Christians and what we should not and must not do as Christians. And as we've seen, the whole do part is while we're, why we're here. So like I said, the what is the easy part because it's so clear. Do we have the easy part down? Because what's not so easy are the why and the how. Because we can very easily fall into doing the right what with the wrong why. Why are you here this morning? I want to be with my family in Christ. I want to worship God. I want to hear God speak through his word. Great. Well, I haven't been there in three weeks. I really should kind of go. I don't want to get a phone call from one of the elders. I got to kind of stay in the club. Why do we give to the ministry? Is it because, well, I want to help support the church. I want to make sure the ministry is supported and can even grow. Or is it because I really feel guilty if I don't? Why do I read my Bible and pray? Well, I want to hear from God. I want to talk to God. Great. Or once again, well, because, man, I'm really behind on my reading plan. Probably about a week behind. I really got to catch up. I'm just going to run right through this and get it off my to-do list. Why do we serve? Is it because God tells us that serving is what makes us a church? Serving each other? Serving the world together? Or is it because everybody else is doing it? Is it because, well, I really enjoy the ministry more than having to sit in service on Sunday? How about the how? How do we do what we do? How do we serve and give and come to church? Is it begrudgingly? Maybe you're hanging out with a group of friends on a Saturday night. You look at the clock and you realize what's coming in the morning. You're like, oh, church. Do I ever put a smile on and pretend to care when my brother or sister is venting to me or telling me of some ill and I'm just like, just stop, just stop, just stop. I want the conversation over. Do I ever ask, is there something I can do for you? And then when there is, I feel so put upon. Do I come and take part in so many things the church does and then complain about it, so much the church does? I mean, there are, there are a million ways we could do this wrong, right? There are a million ways that we can do the what wrong. So we need to make sure we know why we're doing it and how we're doing it. We need to know why we come here. We need to know why. We need to know how we're supposed to worship. And we're supposed to do it. Listen, I've known many a worshiper. I've been through a few churches who find something to complain about every week, like it's their job. I've known many Christians, literally, who only come to church when it's their turn to serve in that ministry because that's what they enjoy in the whole corporate worship thing, eh, I could do without it. I've known many Christians who seem to have something to say about everything some people do, people who pour their heart People who pour their time into their ministries and people do nothing but complain about it because it's not the way I would do it. And maybe that describes you. It's described me at times. Maybe it describes you this morning. You know what? I'm glad you're here this morning. I'm glad you're here. You have the what down. But why? How do we love others? Do we offer unconditional love the entire time they're really meeting our unspoken conditions? Are we happy to love in action when it's easy or convenient? Do we do it even when while my team's playing at one? How do we love? I think we can go through the motions. Maybe you are going through the motions. I've been there. You can do all the right what's. If we put ourselves in a really, really dangerous position where we don't have the why and the how. Just like David, chapter 28. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, understand that you and your men are to go with me in the army. David said to Achish, very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. Kind of like the season finale for your favorite drama, right? What's David gonna do? The hero is in an impossible position. Is he gonna go and fight against Israel? Is he going to reveal himself to be a liar to the king? We'll find out. But for now, I want to ask you a question. How did David get here? How did David wind up in such a bad position? Because of what he did? Or why and how he did it? So yeah, I want to encourage you, keep doing the what. Let's all do all the what's. Let's make sure we're doing all the what's the Bible tells us to do. Let's consider why we're doing them and be very careful how we do them. It's Like I said, the what is important. David was doing what God wanted done. And look, it benefited God's people, right? David did it for the wrong reason, yet here was Israel regaining the land. Here were the pagans in the land being wiped out like God said. That worked for Israel. God used it. The what, even with the wrong why and how, God used it, and he used it for Israel. Didn't work out so well for David, though, did it? It actually made things worse. And there's David. It's not exactly a valley kind of moment, right? It's sure not a mountaintop moment, though. You know why? Because the what's will never get us up the mountain. The what's may get us about halfway. To the why and the how that gets us up, so... Realize, when you're halfway up the mountain, which as I said, is where we live most of our life, we got three options. We can head down the mountain, we can head up the mountain, or we can spend years just doing circles around the mountain. Which describes you right now? Don't tell me it's between you and God. And I'm going to give you a little spoiler here, okay? We're going to resume this narrative. We're going to take a chapter off, then come back to this. David's actually spared by God from having to make this decision. He winds up not having to go up against Israel. He isn't exposed with the king of Gath. God takes care of it all. i going to give you another spoiler so you're not left wondering, okay? A wonderful spoiler, a glorious spoiler. If you were here this morning and you've been struggling with the what of your walk, God will take care of it. If you're here this morning struggling with the why of your walk, doing what God calls us to do for the right reasons, listen, God will take care of it. If you're struggling with the how, if you just can't help but do things the way you've always done them, to do things your way, God will take care of it. Because no matter where we are, deep in the valley, maybe some of us are just starting our ascent of the mountain. Maybe some of us have been stuck halfway up the mountain for the last 10 years. There's only one way to get to where God wants us. Look up. Turn and look up. We need to do what we see David do so much. Go through the history. Read the Psalms that David wrote in these times. You know what David would do? He would repent. And I'm calling on you this morning, no matter where you are. If you're on the mountaintop, if you're like, this doesn't apply to me, thank God. Good for you. Praise God. Come encourage me after service because I need it. Otherwise, if you know you're not doing the what, if you know you don't have the why and the how, it's okay. Repent. Turn back to God. Maybe you've never done it, maybe you've never repented. Well, today's the day. Turn towards God. Put your eyes up. Look on Christ. And for the first time, say, God, yes, I've been doing it all my way. I've never cared about your way. But God, I want to. Repent. And God will take care of it. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, the one who did all the what we are ever going to need. The one who descended the mountain to come down and get us from the valley we were in. He did it all. There's nothing we need to do right now. He did it all to make us right with God. Why did he do it? He loves you that much. How did he do it? Perfectly, according to God's will. Turn to Jesus. Jesus. Turn to Jesus. Wherever you are in your walk, maybe for the first time, turn to Jesus. Because Jesus came and he raised us up with him to new life, not just so we could do the what with the right why and the how. He did it so we would do it. Ephesians 2. But God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, Brothers and sisters are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Today's the day. Turn your eyes on Jesus. Repent. Repent of where you've fallen short and God will take care of it. It is what Jesus came to create us for. I was going to give you a moment where you are. I'm going to invite Rich up. Right where you are, just bow your head. Many of us thought of something as we're talking about what we may or may not be doing, that we should or shouldn't, why we're doing it. Maybe our intentions are wrong. I'm going to give you a moment. Just give it to God. I invite you, if you want to come to this altar and you want to pray to God, repentance for the first time, repentance for the hundredth time, come to God. Turn your eyes up. Only Father, Lord we, Lord, we know the up and down of living as a Christian in this world, God. It's, we know, God. We know that we tend to do things our way. We know, God, that we do find it easier to trust you when we can have even a little say over how it's done, God. We know, God, that our hearts and our intentions, the things we think, God, they aren't always pleasing to you, God. But Lord, we know, we know that you can change that. God, we know that you can take care of it all. So, Lord, we bow our hearts today. We bow our hearts and we open our hands. We take from us every last piece of ourselves, God, if that's what it takes. And just fill us with the knowledge of who you are. Fill our hearts with faith, God. Help us to keep our eyes always up, always up, moving towards you in all things, God. Take the hearts that are here, Lord, that came in not knowing you and turn them to you. Lift them up, God. Jesus, that's why you came. So God, we surrender ourselves to you and your salvation and your love and your grace, Lord. We rest in your goodness. We rest in your sovereign plan. We know, God. We know, like David should have known. You've made promises, Lord, and you keep every last one. So help us to rest in you, to believe you, God, not just in our minds, Lord, even just in our hearts, but in our actions, Lord. Help us to be what you call us to be, to do what you call us to do. Help us to be a light, God. Keep us from temptation. Keep us from the sins, Lord, that when we do things our own way, we keep falling back into the same sins over and over again, God. Help us. Lift us above that. Plant us on solid ground on Jesus Christ and him alone. Work in all of our hearts, God. We surrender to you this morning. and We pray this in the holy, mighty, and blessed name of Jesus Christ. Amen. 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 If anybody needs prayer after service, the elders would love to pray with you, and of our ministry leaders would love to pray with you. That's what we're here for.